It is great to be here, and it's great to have each one of you who's chosen to come and to worship the Lord together this morning. I feel so blessed to be able to share with this church family, as I, as I shouted out, that meals are something that I am truly thankful for. I'm not just saying that. Um, when you become chief uh, cook, bottle washer, and etc., all in one foul swoop, you genuinely appreciate when people drop meals off at the house a whole lot more than uh, you might otherwise. So thank you to those of you who have done that. Uh, these are the sorts of blessings that we often take for granted, so thank you. Also this morning, uh, just to fill in the church family a little bit more, uh, most of you will have been aware that Ann Anderson has been dealing with health issues And so the circumstances are not uh, looking favorable for her right now. The doctors have said that her condition um, is inoperable. And so they've sent her home. She's comfortable. She's not in any pain. She's at home. Her daughter, Kim, is currently there taking care of her. And there's a lot of family around her, so she has great support. And I know many of you have been uh, caring for her as well. And I know she has just wanted to convey through me how much she appreciates this church family how much she's appreciated your thoughts and prayers and words of encouragement towards her. And she very much wishes that she could be here, uh, but she's still participating. I dropped off the CDs from the last month's worth of sermons for her. She wanted to listen to all of them, so she's still worshiping with us in spirit. So let's remember to lift her up in prayer in this time as, as she is going through um, difficult circumstances. So let's walk with her through those Would you now bow with me as we enter God's word, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a good God, that you are a mighty God, that you are a God who is capable of great, great things, and that, Lord, you are a healer, and that, Father, we have borne witness to your great ability to heal both physically and spiritually. And so, Father, this morning we come to you as those who have hope. Lord, we come to you as those who have a great hope that you can heal, Lord, physically in our bodies. But Lord, if it is your will, we also know that the ultimate healing will come when you bring us into your presence. Whether that be through the gateway of death or whether that be through your return, we know that the ultimate healing is going to happen when we see your face. And so, Father, we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day, Jesus, when we shall see you. We shall know you and to be fully known. And so, Lord, comfort us and encourage us with that today. And we think of that in regards to Ann Anderson. Lord, we pray for her. We know that you are a God fully capable of healing. And so, in our human will, Lord, we do ask that if you would be gracious to heal her, we would be, oh Lord, ready to glorify you and thank you for it. But we also understand, Lord, that in your perfect will, her ultimate healing will come in your presence. And so we simply pray, Lord, your will be done for her and be near to her, Lord, and help us to walk with her to whatever end, we pray. And now, Lord, we want to thank you as well for those who have received a healing touch from you. We thank you for what you have done for Frank. We thank you that he is able to be here with us this morning, Lord, and we thank you for having brought Frank and Marge through a difficult time, and we just give you praise for that as well, Lord. Thank you. And so, Lord, for those who are here today who have other concerns, Lord, health concerns, Lord, uh, other concerns and relationships, Father, we pray that you would intercede, that you by your Holy Spirit would touch each situation, Lord, that you know altogether, and we put it into your hands. Help us to trust you, Lord. 
And so now, Father, Father, this morning, as we enter your word, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come now, Lord, to open the eyes and ears of our hearts that we might hear and see and understand what you have for us. Oh, Lord, give us, uh, quicken our spirits, Lord, that we would have uh, an urgency that we would want to do and obey what you ask of us this morning. And so, Lord, I also ask that you would speak through me. Anoint me, Lord, with the power and the ability to speak your word clearly, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we will be continuing our series in 1 Peter living hope for a dying world, and we are going to continue in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to pick things up in verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Now, I don't think most of us need convincing that one day, this world as we know it is going to come to an end. In fact, the end of the world has been a topic of conversation for centuries. It's one that has been discussed through all ages, and many generations have speculated if they were the generation that would see the end of the world. But you know what? It's not just Christians who have been convinced and come to believe that the world will end someday. It's our popular culture as well. In fact, Certain sectors of our society today are almost obsessed with thinking and talking about the end of the world. It's a constant theme in movies. Who here hasn't seen a movie that has the end of the world as its theme? Come on, be honest. Come on, who here has seen a movie? Who here has seen Armageddon? Yeah, yeah, okay, now we're starting to get one more. This is church. We're supposed to be honest people. Come on. All right, you've all seen a movie, you've, you, and who's seen Left Behind? Okay, that one's safe, you're allowed to admit that. Okay, we've all seen a movie that's had that thematic material about a doomsday scenario, the end of the world, Jesus' return. It's something that's widely accepted. Following the invention of the atomic bomb, a group of atomic scientists became concerned that humanity had now discovered a new way to destroy itself entirely. And so in 1947, some of these scientists who themselves had worked on the Manhattan Project to put together the first atomic bomb, some of them decided to put together a society. They called themselves the Group of Atomic Scientists, and they created a concept called the Doomsday Clock. And how the Doomsday Clock works, some of you might be familiar with this, is how it works is that midnight represents... Doomsday, the end of the world. And so the closer that they set the hands of the clock to midnight, the nearer they believe that we are to a global catastrophe, to doomsday. And so when they initially set the clock way back in 1947, they set the hands at, uh, pardon me, they set the hands at seven minutes to midnight. Now, seven minutes to midnight, they believed was saying we're, we're close to doomsday, but we're not quite there. And so they've adjusted it numerous times since then. The closest it has ever been to midnight is two minutes to midnight. This occurred the year that both the United States and the Soviet Union tested thermonuclear bombs in 1953. The furthest away the clock has ever been set was 17 minutes to midnight, which occurred in 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union. 
However, since then, it has been moving and creeping ever closer towards midnight. And in fact, on January 22nd of this very year, the atomic scientists moved the hands of the doomsday clock to 11.57, just three minutes to midnight, the highest threat level since 1981. Essentially, what these atomic scientists are saying is the exact same thing as Peter. The end is near. So this morning, let me pose for you the question. Since the end is near, what now? If the end is at hand, how should we live? And how should we be spending our time? Now, let me ask you, how do you personally respond to this? When you hear that the end is near, doomsday might be right around the corner, what does that do to you? How do you feel on the inside? Do you feel fear, anxiety, despair? What what does it do inside of you? Does it make you want to go out and build a bomb shelter and stock up supplies in the basement? You know, go buy radiation suits and all these sorts of things. What does it do to you? Does it make you feel helpless? or fatalistic, that whatever's going to happen is going to happen, so there's no point even trying. Humanly speaking, these types of responses are very natural when we consider impending doom. But now the Apostle Peter instructs Christians to have a very different type of response to this phrase, the end is near. Listen to what Peter says in verse 7 again. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled, so that you can pray. Now the first thing that we have to consider is what did Peter mean by saying the end is near? He, of course, wasn't referring to a nuclear holocaust or the end of the world in that way. So we have to consider what did he mean by the end is near? Now we have to consider that he wrote these words over 1900 years ago. So when we think about that, it would seem at initial glance that Peter had a very poor sense of timing. I mean... Think about it. An event that could happen in the year 4000, would you say that it's near? Would you? 2,000 years from now? Of course not. You wouldn't use those terms to reference something that could happen 2,000 years away. So it seems like Peter was just way off with his prediction that the end is near. However, we have to look at it in its proper context. First, when Peter speaks about the end of all things, he is referring to that event which he has just referenced back in verse 5 of the same chapter, when he refers to Jesus returning to the earth to judge the living and the dead. The literal translation of the word near is at hand. This phrase is often used in scripture, and it's used as a motivating factor of living the Christian life. Philippians chapter 4 verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. James chapter 5 verse 8 says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The idea behind all of these verses is not that Christ's coming is immediate, but that Christ's coming is imminent. Do you see the difference? He is saying that though it could be immediate, that's not the, the final analysis. It is imminent. In other words, it could happen at any time. For this reason, Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew 24, verse 44, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect. 
So in this sense, Peter was just as correct in saying the end is at hand as we are in saying it today. You see, Jesus' return will always be imminent for every single generation until the exact moment that it happens. And so in that sense, every last one of us lives with this reality that his return, the day that we see him, is at hand. And it will remain that way until he returns. Now, how should the Christian respond to this end being imminent or at hand? How should we respond? How should we live our lives? There's five nevers that I've drawn out of this passage that Peter would draw for us, I believe, today. The first one is this. Never lose your cool. Verse 7, look at what he says. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Now, what's the first thing that usually happens in any sort of large-scale catastrophe? When you see news coverage of things going very wrong in the world, what do you see people doing? Panic, right? People lose their minds. People lose their cool. They began doing irrational things, crazy things. Now, let me just give you a small example of what happened in our own Canadian city of Vancouver just a few short years ago. You might remember back when the Vancouver Canucks lost Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Now, if there's any Canucks fans here this morning, yeah, I was kind of cheering against them, so I'm I'm not feeling too sorry for you. But (laughs) those of you who were rooting for the Canucks, you probably were feeling, oh, man, this is terrible, this sucks, but you weren't running outside and flipping over cars. At least I hope you weren't. But that's exactly what they did in Vancouver. People lost their cool. They lost their minds. Rioting began. Looting began. People who normally are law-abiding citizens were smashing storefront windows, running inside, stealing things. Police cars were burning in the streets. And this is in Canada over a Stanley Cup. Now, I can only imagine what would happen if the Maple Leafs lost Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. But then again, I guess that would mean they'd have to make the playoffs first. So we're pretty safe on that one, I think. We don't have to worry about that. But when we consider human behavior, it's not a pretty picture, is it? In the face of something going wrong, we as humans have a very strong tendency to lose our cool, to panic, and go crazy. But in stark contrast to that, what Peter is saying to Christians is the exact opposite. The end is near. So don't panic, don't go crazy, don't lose your cool. Be clear-minded. Think clearly. Be self-controlled. Don't be going and doing foolish things, crazy things, just because the end is near. No, you should be the picture of what being under control, being calm and collected looks like in the face of catastrophe. Martin Luther once said this, Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces... I would still plant my little apple tree and pay my debts. It's an interesting way to think about the Christian life. If we know that we are right with our Savior and that meeting him, the end being near, is truly the gateway to life everlasting, why would we lose our cool? Why wouldn't we continue to live our lives exactly as we have been, under God, knowing that he is in control? You know, as the doomsday clock indicates, there are a lot of things that could go wrong in this coming year. 2015 has people worried, and for a lot of good reasons. Economists are pointing to a looming economic crisis similar to 2008 or worse. 
There are signs of a new Cold War emerging with Russia and the West. And in the Middle East, things are always in flux, and never more so than now, and equally facing the prospect of a nuclear-armed Iran. In the face of all of these things, the world is saying this is cause for concern, cause for worry, cause even for panic. Peter says, don't panic. Keep your head. Keep your cool. There's a famous story of a true account that took place on the 19th of May in the year 1780. The place was Hartford, Connecticut. And the day has gone down in New England history as a terrible foretaste of Judgment Day. For at noon, the skies turned from blue to gray, and by mid-afternoon, they had blackened so densely that men fell to their knees and begged a final blessing before the end came. The Connecticut House of Representatives was in session, And as some men fell down and others clamored for an immediate adjournment to the meeting, the Speaker of the House, one Colonel Davenport, came to his feet. He silenced the crowd, and he said these words to the men that day. The day of judgment is either at hand or it is not. If it is not, there is no case for adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles be brought in and we continue our session. You see, the imminent return of Christ for the Christian is not cause for concern. It is cause for rejoicing and cause to keep the course, keep the faith until the moment that we see him. So let me ask you today a very important question. What would you do differently today if you knew for certain that Jesus were coming back tomorrow? What would you do differently today if you knew he was coming back tomorrow? I once did that exercise, and I actually got out a list. And I began to write down the things that I would do differently today if I knew Jesus were returning tomorrow. And shortly after compiling this list that was much longer than I initially thought it would be, I just felt the Holy Spirit impressing a conviction upon my heart. Start living that way today. Why are you leaving this list undone? Because my return is imminent. I could return tomorrow. Why are you leaving these things undone? Start living that way today. And I came to recognize that if I am being fully obedient to God's will for my life, my answer to that question should be, nothing would change. Nothing would change because I would already be faithfully living and doing exactly what God has asked me to be doing. So let me challenge you. Later on today or this week, if you want to take a really serious examination of your life, and if you are living in full obedience to God's will for your life, then make a list of all the things that you'd be doing differently today if you knew for certain Jesus were returning tomorrow. And then ask God for the strength to begin living that list day in, day out. Don't put it off. Jesus' return is imminent. It could be tomorrow. The end of all things is near. So be calm Be cool and live faithfully for the Lord. The second never is this. Never stop praying. Verse 7. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. I believe that prayer is the most important yet underutilized weapon in the Christian's arsenal. I believe that we do not make near enough use of prayer as we could or should be. You know, there's a cliche in Western church circles that says the prayer meeting is the most important yet least attended meeting in the church. 
Why is that? Prayer is one of those things that as Christians we give constant lip service to. I'm praying for you. Let's pray about this. Let's pray about that. But are we actually praying? Prayer is so vitally important, yet so often overlooked. Of course, there are many different types and settings for prayer. Private prayer, family prayer, corporate prayer. All of these are vital for the health and vitality of an individual and a church body. And so if we discern that our personal spiritual lives are anemic, or if we want to complain that our church is mired in maintaining the status quo, the first thing we need to do is look at our prayer life. Quite simply, are we talking to God? It was just last week, I was putting Declan to bed. And about 20 minutes later, I hear talking coming from his bedroom. He's always pulling off tricks to find ways to prolong bedtime. And so at first, I'm ignoring him, and I'm thinking he's just pulling one of his tricks, trying to get me to come back in the room. I need a drink. Can you pick up my teddy bear? But try as I might to ignore him, the talking continued for some time, and it started to get a little bit louder. So finally, I stick my head in the room. I put on as stern an expression I can, and in my deepest voice, I say, Declan, who are you talking to? And he looks at me and he just says, I'm talking to God? (laughs) Well, that took the edge off my voice pretty quickly. It's hard to stay angry with a response like that. And if it was just a trick, it was a really good one. Because it got me into the room and I sat down on his bed and we ended up having a little chat about where God lives and if he can hear us all the time and if he's strong enough to help us build a deck I don't know where that came from. But it was a question that was burning on Declan's mind. But that conversation and his response reminded me of a simple truth. That from a three-year-old to a 30-year-old to a 103-year-old, prayer is our direct connection to God our Father. It is our lifeline to an almighty King of kings and Lord of lords. Prayer is where our spiritual life begins, and it's also where it will end if we stop. Because without that constant connection to our Father, we are just spinning our wheels, and we're trying to go it in our own strength. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, we are admonished, encouraged, commanded, never stop praying. Amen is not the end to praying. Amen is just saying, we're going to pick it up later and pray in between in the Spirit. This is what God wants for us. Constant communication, diligent communication, intentional communication with Him. Are we talking to God? Peter says, never stop. Thirdly, never stop loving. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Let me share with you a story that I've shared once before. It bears retelling. Ernest Gordon's book, Miracle on the River Choir, relates this. During World War II, captured Scottish soldiers were forced by their Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad. The harsh conditions and treatment began to take its toll, and they themselves degenerated to nearly skin and bone under the barbarous conditions, the very small calorie intake, and the constant abuse from the guards. But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel went missing. The Japanese officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the shovel be returned immediately or else. No one in the squadron budged. Finally, the officer got out his gun 
and threatened to kill them one by one until the shovel was produced. It was obvious that he meant business. Finally, one man stepped forward. Instantly, he was killed on the spot. The other men carried their fallen comrade to the next tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. In fact, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. Word spread like wildfire. An innocent man had been willing to die to save the others. The incident had a profound effect upon the men. The men banded together and began to treat each other like brothers because of one sacrificial act of love. During times of stress, relationships constrain to the breaking point, and you are tempted to take out your frustrations on others. And of course, it's always easier to focus on the faults of another than on our own. And to that, Peter says, love each other deeply, fervently. That means don't just love when it's easy or convenient. Love when it's hard. Love when it costs you something. Love even if it means your life. Love with a stubborn sort of love. A love that won't quit. The same way that God loves us. That means that the more a person gives us a reason to not love them, the more we will. That's the sort of tenacity with which our Father in Heaven loves us. And that is the sort of tenacity which we are called to love one another. And so let me ask you, are you loving that way? And what is the result of loving in that way? Peter says this, loving that way will cover a multitude of sins. Now, this doesn't mean that sin is ignored. It means that sin is forgiven. Why? Because love delights in showing mercy. Do you know that? Love delights in showing mercy. It delights in extending grace. Love is what sent Jesus to the cross. So that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That is what love compelled our Lord Jesus to do. It compelled him to show mercy, to lay down his life so that we could live. This is what love does, my friends. And so we are called as fellow believers in the faith to love one another this way. And so when you are at odds with a fellow brother or sister in the faith, remember that just as Jesus delighted in showing you mercy and with his shed blood covered over your sin like the fresh white snow covers the dirt, so too God wants you to delight in showing mercy to your brother and your sister. And in doing so, extend forgiveness that allows grace to flow freely, that will cover over even a multitude of sins. This is the sort of thing that brothers and sisters in Christ are called to do. And this is what our Lord Jesus has done for us. So never stop loving. Fourthly, never stop showing hospitality. This is a practical extension of love. Peter says, never stop showing hospitality and never start grumbling about it. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality was an important part of Middle Eastern culture. It typically meant feeding and housing guests for two to three days with no expectation of payment or any favors in return. This was especially important during times of persecution, since many believers would be put out of their homes and often had to go into hiding. There were also traveling teachers, such as Paul and Peter, 
who often depended on church members to give them lodging as they traveled around teaching and planting the churches. The modern application of this principle could be seen in being a good neighbor, in sharing your home and resources with others who are in need. And to be perfectly honest, I have never fully understood the importance of hospitality as much as I have until these past couple of weeks when Leanne had an unfortunate incident with uh, stairs in the dark. (laughs) I became in one moment of of middle-of-the-night realization that I was now a nursemaid, a chief cook, bottle washer, diaper changer, and butler, and pack horse all wrapped into one bundle. And as that realization kind of hit me, and I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to get through all of this? Immediately, help started to come in. Meals started to come in. Leanne's mom came in. And just so many people have been helping us out to make the load bearable. And to make it not only um, something that we've been able to grit our teeth and get through, but we've actually felt like we've received a blessing through all of this. And it's given me a greater understanding and appreciation for a church family and what it does in times of need. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you who have helped us in this way. This is what we're called to do as a church family. Extend this sort of hospitality. And to all of your credit, I have not heard once, once, one of you complain about bringing us a meal or helping us out. So thank you. If you're complaining, you're keeping it to yourselves. So that's great. (laughs) But Peter calls us to do this willingly, freely, without grumbling. So thank you. Finally, and lastly, never stop serving. Never stop serving. Peter writes, each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. One of the most common themes of the parables that Jesus shared is in regards to stewardship. A steward is a person who is given the responsibility to use his master's resources for his master's purposes. Using his image, pardon me, made in his image, we are to reflect him in all that we say and do. God is our master, and you and I are his servants. And so the gifts that God gives us are not ours, they belong to him. And so when we serve him, we do so principally by serving others. And there is such a wide variety of ways that we do that, and so many different avenues to use our gifts in service to God by serving others. And so within this church family, serve God faithfully. If the end is near, may we serve more faithfully, not less. Because that is what we are called to, and it will build up the church, and God's blessing is upon it, and God's name is glorified. So never stop serving your Lord, glorifying him in all that we do. So in conclusion, never lose your cool, never stop praying, never stop loving, never stop showing hospitality, and never stop serving. To the glory of God our Father, may we be encouraged this morning to continue all the more as we see the end drawing ever near. The Lord's return is imminent. So may we be found faithfully doing exactly what he has called us as his children to do. Amen. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who looks upon us in love. And because of your great love, O Lord, you have shown us mercy. 
You have shown us mercy that flows like a never-ending river that comes even from your throne. For this, God, we give you praise and glory that because of your Son, the Lord Jesus, our sins have been covered and that we can be right with you, that we are now your children, your beloved sons and daughters. And so, Father, in all that we say and all that we do, in every day that we live, and may we live with the knowledge that your return is imminent, may we be faithful to do the things that you have asked us to do. May we love one another deeply and fervently. O Lord, not being stingy, not holding it back, but giving it freely, lovingly, as you have given it to us. And so, Father, in all of these things, we know your Holy Spirit is at work. So bless this to our hearts, Lord. Remind us of these truths as we go into this week. And may we live each day with the knowledge that we shall see you very soon. Your return is imminent, and the day we shall see you will come sooner than we realize. And so, Father, may we live for that day. May we love one another, and may we love you with everything that we have. Increase our love, O Father. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.